Let's open our Bibles now together to the book of Esther chapter 5. We are continuing on in this strange book. What a departure the book of Esther has been from the book of Romans, which we spent a hundred sermons studying. But I do love this book. We're in Esther chapter 5. We're going to be picking up where we left our story off. And that has us in the very first verse of Esther chapter 5. We finished chapter 4 last week. So if you are able to stand one more time together, at least one more time for a long time, we stand to honor the word of the Lord, not by empty ritual. We stand because we are under the authority of the inerrant word of God. This, this good and pure and perfect gift that God has given to us. And so hear now the word of the Lord from Esther chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. In front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. The king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And Esther answered, My wish and my request is this. If I found favor in the sight of the king, if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request... Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. For this good, pure, perfect gift that you have given to us. We thank you, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit's working through your word, that we are transformed into the likeness of our Savior. That we have even been brought from death to life. Pray, God, that by your spirit, through your word, you would accomplish all your good purposes among us, giving sight to blinded eyes, giving hearing to deaf ears, giving strength where weariness has come in, encouraging us and lifting our eyes by your spirit to behold the Lord Jesus Christ, the author, the finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. So far in this story of Esther, we have seen these two Jews, Esther and Mordecai, living in Persia, living in this massive empire, the biggest on earth, in the kingdom of Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus, as we said many times, is a, is a throne name. It's like Pharaoh. The, the name we know him best by historically is his Greek name, Xerxes. And in the beginning of the story, these two are not very faithful, Esther and Mordecai. They're not exactly role models for us. They have been thoroughly secularized or Persianized or paganized. But events as we have gone through, and we're not going to rehearse the whole story, events as we have gone through have led to their repentance. We see this man, Haman, that we just read about in our verses. He is the secretary of state, for lack of a better term. He is the the second in command to King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, and he hates the Jews. He hates Mordecai in particular, and he convinced King Xerxes to send out an edict, an irrevocable edict across every area of this vast empire to everyone in their own name, in their own language, and the, the policy is this. Kill all the Jews. On a certain day, neighbor will rise up against neighbor and slaughter his Jewish neighbor until there are none left. What Xerxes doesn't know is he sends out this decree is that his own wife is a Jew and he is clueless. In chapter four, then Mordecai convinces Esther to face her divine calling to go to the king uninvited, which 
has a penalty of death for somebody like Esther, who is the queen. It's maybe about a 50-50 shot as she approaches King Xerxes' throne. King Xerxes' history tells us his throne was flanked by men with large axes who just stood near him. She's got about a 50-50 chance as she goes to reveal to him that she's a, a Jew, a secret she's been keeping from him, and risk her life. To ask him to spare her people. And Esther, before she goes, calls for a three-day fast. Which, again, in the book of Esther, we never see a mention of God. We never see a mention of prayer. But we see in this fast, we know that, that among the Jews, we know what goes with fasting. Fasting and prayer. Fasting and calling on the name of the Lord. So there's this turn that's begun to happen. This turn of repentance. This turn of trusting in God and In verse 13 of chapter 4, she says, Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young people will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And now we come to chapter 5. She has purposed in her heart. She's going to go do this thing. Whatever happens is going to happen. And we enter into this carefully staged scene that is things are laid out precisely the way we need to hear them. In verse one, on the third day, that's the third day of the fasting, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. So the three days of fasting has come to its end. Esther puts on her royal robes. She stands in the inner court opposite the king's throne. And then the camera kind of cuts away from Esther and into the throne room. And we see the king sitting on his throne. There's there's so much tension in this moment. Here sits King Xerxes, flanked by men with axes, in all of his royal splendor, in all of his hot-headedness, in all of his inability to control himself. This man who is driven by his own lusts and his own desires and his own pride. He's got all the power in this situation. And just outside the doorway... Facing his throne is Esther, little orphan girl Esther, little Jewish girl Esther. And she is dressed in her royal robes and she is undoubtedly fearful in this moment. She's positioned herself strategically in the hopes that he might see her before she ever has to come in on her own. Before she ever has to barge in, she's hoping he's just going to see me. He's going to see me dressed up, looking my very best framed perfectly in the doorway of the throne room like some sort of Disney princess. They've been married for five years. Their relationship in this time has been defined by one thing only, and that is the king's physical desires, his own lusts. Xerxes, we're told, hasn't asked to see her for more than a month. And so here she stands in this moment. He's not as impressed with her as he once was. And she's risking everything. This is the moment. This is the moment that their prayers had been focused towards. This is the moment that all of God's people attention has been directed towards. Verse 2. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. He held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So Esther's Esther's plan worked. She she positions herself where the king might see her just standing out there. She didn't barge in and come running in, shouting and screaming into his presence. He, He sees her and he remembers, I like her. Again, we see God had given Esther favor with King Xerxes. No doubt she was beautiful. In fact, the scripture uses more descriptors of her beauty than any other woman in all the Bible. So we know she's she's beautiful, but God has given her favor, and and the king sees her and remembers this. What's really happening here is not just the king sees his wife, and she's really dressed up and looks really good, and he thinks to himself, yeah, I do like her. She's great. What's happening is God is at work. God is inclining the heart of his king 
towards his appointed person. He doesn't see her in that moment as Esther, the, oh, she won that contest. Oh, I remember that night with her. That was quite a night. I remember any other subsequent nights we've spent in the last five years. This, this beautiful woman who exists as my plaything to just fulfill my own fantasies and desires. That's not how the king sees her. It says, when the king saw Queen Esther, he looks out there and says, that's my queen. And it's really the way he deals with her for the rest of this story as his queen as his wife. He holds out the golden scepter, granting Esther her life. This is that moment that God's people have been fasting for, for three days. And God has heard and answered their prayers. Esther's taking, as much as we've had to say about Esther's character leading up to this moment in the story, Esther's taking bold action here, courageous Action And the truth is, if Christian, if you believe in God's sovereignty, if you believe that God really is sovereign, we say all the time, that just means he does what he wants, when he wants, the way he wants, and he never has to ask anyone's permission. God does what he pleases. He is governing and directing all things, which is a, this is a major theme in Esther as we see God providentially working every detail of this story out. But if you believe that, Christian, you'll pray boldly. It will give boldness to your prayers. William Carey, the great Baptist missionary to India, said if we will, if we will embrace and rest in God's sovereignty, we will expect great things from God and we will attempt great things for God. Because we know that God is going to accomplish all of his good purposes. And we know that he has decided and purposed and ordained that he will work those purposes out through means. And that means is us, his people. Well, Esther's made quite a turnaround. Esther's taking bold, brave action here. But again, it's God who's granting her this favor with the king. It's God as we pull back behind the scenes that we see orchestrating everything. And at this point, as we see Esther turn from morally questionable lifestyle and activity to noble and admirable lifestyle and activity, we need to remind ourselves right now in this moment, all the more so because of the way that the book of Esther is usually portrayed in all the movies that are made about it, of which there's not a single good one that I'm aware of. They're all ridiculous. Because of the way we portray this story, we need to remind ourselves this. Esther's not the hero of this story. God's the hero of this story. This God who is intentionally unnamed by the author is the hero. Esther's story, as we said last week, is a shadow of a much greater one to come who does far more than Esther did. Esther wins the king's favor. Esther is not... Condemned in this moment, and spoiler alert, God's people aren't going to die either. But Jesus, who was not guilty, was not spared. Esther's spared here. Jesus was not. Jesus was made the object of divine wrath and was condemned. Esther lived, but Jesus died so that we might live. Esther risked it all in this kind of 50-50 moment. Am I going to get killed or am I going to get granted mercy? But Jesus went to his death knowing that there was no reprieve for him. He was not going to be spared. He died, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. And, and, and that's, that's the best news. It's far better news than, than this story of Esther, which is a great story. And good news, but the true good news, capital G, capital N, good news, is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrificial work of Jesus in our place. Because apart from Jesus, we are all guilty before God. We are all condemned. We are all under a just sentence of death. But Jesus died so the sinners like me could live. So the sinners like you could live. The king holds out the golden scepter to Esther and she is spared, but Jesus was not spared. The death sentence for our sin was carried out on him. 
And the best news is this, the penalty was satisfied for all who trust in Jesus. His death was sufficient, fully efficacious, in fact. It was not an attempt, as we remind ourselves so often as we come to the Lord's table at the end of our our service together. The, the, The cross of Christ was not an attempt. The life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ was not an attempt. It was not wishful thinking. It was an accomplishment. So Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's Esther approaching the throne of King Xerxes, the mightiest man on earth, and no doubt fearful, and no doubt has no idea what's going to happen to her as she comes. As she says, if I die, I die. The thrice Holy God, creator God, the judge of all flesh bids us come to him through his son. For those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need not fear to come before the king of the universe, before whom the king of Persia trembled. The one who who channeled the king of Persia's heart in his hand like like waters are channeled. If Jesus paid for your sin, this one seated on the throne will never condemn you. What is better news than that? What glorious, glorious news. And so as we look at this puny little earthly leader, yes, the most powerful man on earth, puny. Read Psalm 2. You'll see how puny he is compared to God. As we look at this man, we look at the fear that he invokes, we lift our eyes to the throne of grace and we behold our God. What a glorious thing. Now back in verse 3, the king says to Esther, what is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. So, so, so Ahasuerus sees her. He's not angry. He's intrigued. What would motivate you to do this? What would motivate you to take a risk like this? What's your request? I'm going to give it to you. Whatever it is, the answer is yes. And he says, even up to half of my kingdom. Now, not really. He doesn't plan to like co-rule with her. He's not making her equal to himself. This is just an expression common to kings. We see Herod use it in the New Testament. And Herod doesn't even have a kingdom to give away. This is just something people, oh, up to half of my kingdom, I'll give it to you. Esther doesn't really get to go. That's, it's, I'm glad you said that because dividing the Persian Empire is exactly what I had in mind coming in here. No, that's... Esther still needs to be very careful in this moment. Xerxes has already said, I'm going to do whatever it is you're going to ask me, but what she's going to ask him is going to embarrass him. She's going to ask him, this edict you sent out across your whole empire, this irrevocable one, what I'm going to ask you to do is reverse that. And you pronounce death on all the Jewish people. By the way, I've got a secret I've been keeping from you. She needs to be very careful. Verse 4, Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I've prepared for the king. Now, this is not what Mordecai told her to do. Mordecai said, go into the king and let's plead our case. Reveal your identity to him. Ask him to spare our people. But she's talking Xerxes language here when she says, I've got a feast prepared for you. Will you come to it? Remember how the book starts. A six-month feast followed by a one-month feast. When you start talking about feasting and drunkenness, this king is there for it. The king says, verse 5, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to feasts, to the feast that Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what's your wish? It shall be granted to you. What's your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So they have this feast immediately. She, she goes into him. She goes, I, it's already prepared. And he says, Haman, let's do this. Haman's got to be riding high. Look at me. It's just me and the king and his queen. And I have been invited to this feast. After it's over and they're full of wine and feeling good about things, the king brings it up again. So what do you want? What is it? I'll do it. 
Esther is in the perfect, this is the moment for her. To tell her exactly what's going on. King, you sent this edict out to kill all the Jews. It's because Haman is our enemy. In fact, I'm a Jew. You just sent the word out to kill me. Will you spare us? All she has to do in this moment, as the king has enjoyed her feast, is filled with wine, is reminded of how much he likes her, and has already promised to do whatever she asks. All she needs to do is be straightforward, to be open and honest. And that is not what she does. Esther has a plan. Verse 7, then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king... And if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And I just got to read the next verse, even though it's not in our text today, just because it's so glorious. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Oh, Haman is on top of the, I got invited to this feast that was just for them, that the queen prepared she was obviously so impressed with me. She wants another feast. I, I am on top of the world. We know this man is filled with pride, filled with arrogance. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened. He is in for a rude awakening. The, the truth is, throughout the book of Esther, King Ahasuerus and Haman are objects of mockery. They're objects of mockery in this story. Who holds all the power here? As we see this situation unfolding, here's mighty Xerxes with the power of life and death and his own whims seated on his throne. And now we come to this feast. And now Esther invites them to another feast. Well, it's not King Xerxes the Great that holds all the power. It's not the king's right-hand man, the bloodthirsty Haman, who holds all the power. Here's Esther, this Jewish orphaned girl who has the mightiest ruler in the world and his second in command eating out of the palm of her hand. She is completely manipulating them. They have no idea. Look what Esther says here in this, in this verse. It is, it is genius. She gets the king, who has already said, I'll do whatever you said. Now she just solidifies it. And she gets him to agree again right up front. If it pleases the king to grant my request and fulfill my request, come to the second feast. In other words, if you show up to this second feast, it means you have to say yes to whatever it is I'm about to ask you. So we're going to leave the story right there this week, which is a weird place to leave the story. But we need to see what Esther's doing here. Esther is, is plotting. Esther is being deceptive. Or if not deceptive, at least highly manipulative. Esther is defying her government. Esther is plotting directly against the Secretary of State. She is manipulating the king himself. She is attempting to openly defy the law of the land. Now, isn't that always wrong? Isn't the law of land so settled that we must all bow our knee to whatever it is? Should she even have gone to the king? That was illegal. She broke the law to do this. For sure... She shouldn't be sneaky and manipulative, right? For sure. Well, first of all, remember what we've said over and over. The point of the book of Esther is not that Esther and Mordecai are role models. So we can, uh, we can remove a little of our angst when we look at her actions. They're not being set up for us as role models. They aren't. They're not the heroes of the story. God is the hero of the story. God is orchestrating everything. But the truth is, this story meets us right where we're living. And that's why we're going to stop midstream here. Spend the rest of our time thinking about our lives. Our kingdom that we live in. Making application to our lives. We, we need to ask the question that Esther's trying to work, figure out in her own life. How are we supposed to live in the face of a corrupt society? 
in the face of a corrupt culture. How do you live if your government is corrupt? Thank God that we don't live in an empire like Persia where even the government's corrupt, right? (laughs) Yeah, we better think about it because that's where we're living. I don't need to rehearse all of our national sins. I got too many notes anyway. I could, I could, we'd just be here for hours and hours if I started just going down the list of all the ways that we have set ourselves up in direct opposition to God himself. How do we live as Christians in the face of a culture like that? Well, to answer this question... Christians usually respond in one of two ways. One is we drop everything and we get politically active. We get politically involved. You've heard some of this rhetoric. The secularists are taking over America. We have to get organized. We have to to stop them. The church becomes a lobbying organization, a special interest group. We cease to be the church. We become a religious, social, conservative Movement, And the way you know that this thinking has started is we start to look and we're like, Jehovah's Witnesses? Ah, oh, they agree with us about most of these political issues. Mormons? Muslims? They, they, they share our concerns about some of these things. That's our team. Politicians? Politicians who, who might live a lifestyle that is abhorrent to biblical morality? One prominent conservative politician who blamed his last loss in the election, I won't say his name, leave it to you to guess. He blamed his last loss in the presidential election on us. These anti-abortion people. And he just railed against us. And then we do this. I I think I better get a flagger eight to put out around with his name on it. He's our guy. He's God's guy. This is how we know something has shifted in our thinking. And, and, and we are losing gospel witness. That's not to say who, who you vote for if you vote for that man. Everybody knows who I'm talking about. Oh, you've surrendered your God. No, that's not what I'm saying. He may be, by the time that election comes, you may say... I have to vote for him. I just have to do it. But our idolizing of men like him is telling. Good, at least we're not going to step on any toes this morning. It's attempting to change the world without the gospel is what it is. That's one response to this. We look at the the wicked world we live in and we go, the gospel's not going to be enough. And attempting to change the world without the gospel is like trying to, to sweep a pond uphill. I think I'd like to move it from down here to uphill. I got this broom. We'll get it there. No, you won't. It can't be done. It's impossible. Okay, that's one extreme. But the other extreme is this. We just don't get involved at all. You don't, you don't rearrange the deck furniture on the Titanic. There's no point in it. You don't polish the brass on a sinking ship. We're often told, just preach the gospel. Don't get into these political... I can't tell you how many times over the years as a pastor I have heard people do this. He talks about politics too much. Just preach the gospel. What they mean is this. Don't talk about anything that the world has claimed as political. Don't talk about abortion. The world claimed that as political. Everybody else can talk about it. Don't talk about what marriage really is or how God designed us as male or female or sexuality. Don't talk about that because the world claimed that as political. And to that I just say I reject that. I reject that. These are gospel issues. So so when, when I'm told don't talk about political issues, just preach the gospel, I say how can I even apply the gospel unless I'll talk about these things? What they really mean is don't preach the gospel. And by all means, don't apply it to our lives as we live in this time and in this place. Oh, isn't it enough that eventually we're going to go to heaven and the whole world can just go to hell? Isn't that enough? Well, in contrast to both of those, God has commissioned us, church, to something quite different. 
The duty of the church is this, to preach a world-transforming gospel. That's what we're called to. We have been given the gospel. We are ambassadors of the gospel. And the gospel changes everything. The gospel will transform the world. The gospel has been, is, and will transform the world. The gospel is what looks earthly kings in the face, like Xerxes, the most powerful man on earth, and declares to him, no, Jesus Christ is king. The gospel, as we see in the New Testament, particularly the, the book of Revelation, looks, looks, looks emperors in the face, looks Caesar in the face and says, no, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the gospel we have been given. So no, we can't lock it up in this building. We can't say it doesn't have anything to say to every aspect of this world that we're living in. The gospel speaks to every aspect of life in this world. And that includes that which goes under the banner of politics. One pastor says, it's a gospel that will take an unbelieving culture, turn it upside down, and shake it until all the change falls out of its pockets. That's the gospel we've been given. That this, this culture must hear this gospel. That's the duty of the church, to preach a world-transforming gospel. Our call to action in the Sermon on the Mount on Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light up a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Salt that has lost its, trample, its, its saltiness is good for nothing. Except to be trampled under feet. The truth is the people, they don't even know they're doing it. They don't even notice that they're trampling underfoot this salt that has lost its saltiness. They're not persecuting the church. They're just walking all over the church because the church has become powerless. And I don't mean the capital C, invisible church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean this visible Church that we see around us in so much of the world and certainly in our own country and even in our own community. There's a difference between being persecuted and being ignored. Between unbelievers trying to destroy a powerful church and unbelievers walking all over an impotent church. This is what we have seen in the first four chapters of Esther. That kind of Church, Of course, it's not the church. It's not a church. But we see God's people who have been made impotent and powerless, disengaged, salt that has lost its saltiness. Now things have changed. Repentance has begun. And what's the first sign of true repentance? They're not staying hidden anymore. They're not staying on the sidelines anymore. You're taking bold action. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. A city set on a hill. God put the church in the world to function in public. In public. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. How, how much more clear could Jesus be? You don't put the light under a basket. You put it on a stand. It lights up the whole house. And then Jesus says, just in case all of that wasn't clear enough, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What's the light, Jesus says? It's our good works. Our good works are to be seen. We're supposed to be having an impact on the world around us, Jesus says, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, that glorifying may not happen now. In fact, it, it probably won't. The world loves Christian charity. The world loves Christian generosity. But the world hates the light that shines. 
The light of the gospel, the light of the the glory of Christ. The the world hates that. That light shines into some dark corners and they don't like exposed what's going on in those dark corners. There's some terrible things going on in the dark and the light exposes them and the world hates that. Our world doesn't recognize a good work when it sees it. It doesn't know what a good work is. Is It calls evil good, and it calls good evil. So how do we know what's good? We have to go to the word of God. That's how we know. That's how we find out what's what's good. And Christians need to recover a biblical view of heaven and earth. In this this same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me tell you, a, a, a major way of thinking of the American evangelical church for a number of decades now It is this. Our prayer is this. Rapture me out of here and this world can go to hell. This world is going to go from bad to worse. Just zap me out so I don't have to be a part of it. That's not our goal, church. We're not refugees evacuating into heaven while the world burns around us. God isn't abandoning this world. He is making all things new. We, we are called to pray that God's kingdom would come. Not that we'd be zapped out, but that his kingdom would come, that his will would be on, done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, how does he plan to do that? How does he plan to answer that prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God going to answer that prayer? God who works through means. It's through his church. It's through our prayers. It's through our actions. It's through our speaking. How do we then bring that into our everyday lives? If that's true, if that's our prayer, if this is our call from God, how do we bring it into our Monday morning tomorrow? How do we bring it into our conversations at work or with a family member? How do we bring it into our voting in the next election? Here's where it starts. We embrace truth. Truth. Capital T. For well over a century, American evangelicals, evangelical just used to mean Bible-believing Christian. They've wanted to unify. What a good goal. What a good goal that is, to be unified. Week after week after week, as we come to the Lord's table... I am inviting the other believers who are seeking to live lives of complete obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, who are members of some other local congregation, to unify with us as we worship the Lord as he has ordained in coming to this table. What a beautiful thing unity is. How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. The problem is they've done it by minimizing truth. It's been unity at the expense of truth because, of course, truth divides. And we don't want to divide. We don't want to, we don't want to talk that specifically about things. We want to be united. So we're never supposed to talk about what divides us. We are afraid to talk about things we don't agree on. And the truth is refusal to talk about the things that divide us is a refusal to ever get around to talking about what's actually wrong with us. We can never get around to sin if we're going to do that. Why why aren't Christians all of one mind on abortion, for instance? How can that possibly be? Of all things, the murder of the most helpless of us, how can it possibly be that there is debate at all among Christians? There's debate because we have operated for a long time under the assumption that unity is more important than truth. 
And so we reduce everything to the lowest common denominator. We don't ever talk about that. The, the 11th commandment is simply don't talk about anything that offends anybody. Don't do it. What we do when we do that is we reveal we don't really care about truth. We're unwilling to repent of our sins. We accommodate sin. And when we do that, we are harming our brothers and sisters. And what we have is not true unity. True unity is not that fragile. I don't have to worry if Andrea and I get into an argument about something, um, which doesn't really happen very much, but um, let's say she opposed the Kansas Jayhawks and I had to, to scream at her violently and shake her by the shoulders. No, I don't have to worry anytime there's some uneasiness in our house like, what if our unity's lost through this? No, we're together. It's not that fragile a thing. True unity's not. What we have when we do this, when we sacrifice truth for the sake of unity, what we have is something less than unity. We have some kind of conformity with one another. We have some sort of agreement that's very fragile. I had a conversation once with a young Christian college student, young woman. Her husband was a youth pastor. And her argument in favor of abortion was simply, well, the babies go to heaven anyway, right? Isn't it a bigger, like, climate change is considerably more important than this. She literally told me Walmart's treatment And payment of their employees is a much bigger deal that Christians should be concerned about than abortion. She was deeply offended when I said, well, abortion is murder, so I think we should care. She told me then that calling homosexuality a sin was wrong, and I said, now why exactly is that? And she said, because some Christians see things differently from you, and that language offends them. These were the people pastoring the teenagers and young adults in a missionary church, which is a conservative, um, so-called conservative denomination. That's, that's how much this stuff has made its way in, the sacrifice of truth in the name of unity. And you know what? I agree with her. The truth is offensive, and some people need to have their feelings hurt. That's the reality. A sick and dying culture needs the maximum amount of truth. This world needs Jesus. And Jesus does not come in bite-sized portions. It's not the buffet where we pick out the things we like and we don't pick out the other things we like and we go, I'll take this part of Jesus, but I don't really like this part over here. We either have him as Lord, all of him, or we do not have him. We have something Else, Suppose you go to the doctor and you've got cancer and you say to the doctor, okay, but just tell me 1% of the truth here. Because there's some other stuff that you want to say to me and I don't like it and I don't want to hear it. And it's going to hurt me. Over the course of about 10 years, give me teaspoon-sized doses of, of the truth that I need to hear. And I think I'll be able to take it in if you do that with me. What's the doctor going to say to you? You're going to die if you do that. You, this truth that I got, you need all of it. And you need it all right now. You need it all right up front. And it's going to hit you like a ton of bricks. And it's going to hurt. And it's going to make you mad. It's going to make you ask questions. And you say to him, but if I take that message home to my family, we're going to have some seriously awkward conversations that I don't want to have. People are going to be upset. Well, we know how crazy that would be. The real question is not, what do some people believe? What do some people want to hear? The question is, what is true? What is reality? What does God's word tell us? Because what God's word tells us is what God wants us to know. And he wants us to know all of it. We should be getting as much of God's truth into our conversations as we can. We shouldn't be holding things back, thinking that we are smarter than God. God revealed this in his word, but as a a person living in 2023, I've learned some things that God obviously didn't know when he wrote this Bible. 
Now, none of us would say that. That's what we do when we skirt around biblical truth, when we try to, to soften its weight. Our culture is dying. It's filled with cancer. It needs truth. It doesn't need, it doesn't need teaspoon-sized doses of medicine. And no matter what the culture says, no matter what names they call Christian, the gospel is good news. We know this. They don't know it. They don't know what good news is. We know what good news is. It is not a message of condemnation. It is a message of deliverance from the condemnation they are already under. But it doesn't come on our terms. Healing, life, deliverance, it does not come on our terms. It comes on God's terms. And the truth is people simply don't like that. People simply hate that. That it comes on God's terms. But we have to know what's true. We have to know that this is really good news. This really is good medicine. If the church is going to do the things that God has called us to do, we need the miracle of restored saltiness. We need to actually be that city set on a hill. What does that look like? I'll give you three things very, very quickly. One, we must always keep the undiluted gospel central. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul says, The Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. God's truth is effective, but, but not in a way the world is going to enjoy. It's, it's in a way they'll want to suppress. It's in a way they'll want to trample underfoot, but they simply won't be able to. Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Truth is, God's word, this gospel is not one that unbelievers are going to like. They're not going to like it. They'll want to shut it down. They'll want to shut you up. They will make it personal. You're making people feel bad. You're being awfully judgmental. You're on the wrong side of history. You're ignorant, you're backwards, you're hateful. But we have to love people enough to tell them the truth. We have to love the truth. And we have to love sinners. We have to, to ask ourselves, would I rather be genuinely loving and perceived as hateful? Or would I actually rather be hateful but be perceived as loving? Because if we withhold the truth, if we affirm people in their sin, they will think that we are loving them, but what we are doing is hating them. And if we speak the truth to them, they will think that we're hating them, but what we're actually doing is loving them. Which would you rather have, Christian? Well, we better love truth. We better love people. Come what may. Don't make the mistake of trying to be smarter than God. What God has given to us in his word, he wants us to know. And he wants us to not be ashamed of. He doesn't want us to come to scripture and say, I'm kind of embarrassed about this passage. These passages here, these are clobber passages. We don't use those. No, no, no. You're not smarter than God. Let God sort it out. God sees the hearts. We don't see the hearts. We're called to love everyone, even when they call our love hate. And we just have to trust in God at that point. And we have to ensure that we're not being hateful. We have to, to check our hearts daily. We have to repent of our sin. We have to, to ask the Lord to grant to us humility. As we understand the gospel, as we, as we by the Spirit of God have our eyes lifted to behold Christ and what he has done for us, it produces humility in the Christian's heart. God forbid that we would be arrogant. God forbid that we would be judgmental. But we who have been forgiven much love much. Second, we must be characterized by true 
wisdom. That is not going to come to you from the culture when they tell you what you can and can't talk about. They don't have true wisdom. Look at, look at King Ahasuerus and his complete lack of wisdom in this book. Look at all of his advisors and their complete lack of wisdom in this book. The world doesn't have it. It will not come to you from culture. It will not come to you from church growth experts. I get emails periodically from church growth experts and I always just think pretty much the opposite of what they're suggesting is going to be a good path for us going forward. The church is not a business. In business, the customer is always right, but we're not in business and we don't have customers. The church deals with two kinds of people. We deal with sinners and we deal with repenting sinners who by the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus Christ are actually now forgiven saints. That's our two categories of people. And the church has a word for both of them. To the sinner, we say, come and welcome to Jesus. He will have you, but you must bow your knee. And to the forgiven saints, we say, come again. Keep coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, this one who bids you come to him. Our clear duty is to present the scandal and offensiveness of the truth and to do so humbly and to do so lovingly and to do so boldly. To speak the truth in love and to do so humbly, it doesn't mean that it's sugary. It doesn't mean that it's wishy-washy. It doesn't mean that it's partial truth that leaves out hard things. Jesus didn't do things that way. Jesus was not the, the first hippie. He, he was not a pacifist. Jesus was the kind of guy who would take enough time to fashion a whip. That amount of time he could have cooled off in. And then to take that whip that he had made and go use it on people. And clear a 30 acre courtyard. That's our savior. We don't need to be smarter than him. People, people say, oh, I like your Jesus. I just don't like your Christians. If you, were, if you were more like Christ, then people would like you. They wouldn't have a problem with you. I would just say, how'd that work out for Jesus? Was Jesus sufficiently Christ-like? Well, the answer is, yeah, sort of the definition, in fact. They hated him. They slandered him. And they murdered him. That's what happens to people who are like Jesus because the truth is offensive to those who hate God. The truth is scandalous to the unrepentant heart. Colossians 4, verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Gracious, seasoned with salt, our words must be full of grace and our words must have a backbone. Paul says there in Colossians 4, know how you ought to answer each person. This is not a one size fits all scenario. You've heard the expression, if all you got is a hammer, everything starts looking like a nail. That's not how we approach people. This approach that just comes to everybody exactly the same, and whether it's in the soft tone, oh, you just need to know. What a special flower of creation you are to God. And how wonderful and gifted and talented. Hey, maybe some people need to hear. You're made in the image of God with incredible dignity and value and worth. And you're throwing it away. They need to hear that he loves them. Sometimes I hear people, there'll be a video of someone evangelizing on the street and they'll say that God loves you to somebody and then some raging lunatic on the internet will type, don't tell them God loves them. You don't know. All right, knock it off. You're being a giant weirdo. People need to hear that. But that's not what everybody needs to hear. Some people need to hear that, that you are dangling by a thread over the fires of hell because of your rebellion, because of your hatred for God in your heart. You are hurting people. You are hurting your family. And God is going to crush you unless you repent. 
It's not a one size fits all. We, Paul says so that we know how to answer each person. Esther knew who she was dealing with and she knew how to deal with them. She knew this straightforward approach. You just come to the king and say, I'm a Jew. I've been lying to you for five years. I know this is going to be embarrassing. Well, that was not going to work with this lunatic. And really, how did we get to this place in our culture? We got to this place in our culture because people had a plan. People had a strategy and they worked it. They were smart about it. How did we get to the place with with the White House being lit up with rainbow colors and celebration of Pride Month? How do we get to the place that all of these things go on? It's because people had a plan and they steadily worked that plan and kept their hand to the plow. Meanwhile, the church went, I think we should just go with the flow and be real nice and loving to people in the way that they've defined love for us and it'll all work out. It's time for the church to dig in. It's time for the church to put some purpose to our conviction. It's time for the church, friends, to live like we might be around another thousand years. And we want those generations to inherit something better than we're living with right now. It's time for us to be wise. It's time for us to be in it for the long haul. And finally, lastly, we must fight for joy in the midst of this. This evil world around us is dark It is frightening. It is infuriating. How do we come against it? It is not by raging. It's not by yelling. It is not by actually being the things that we're accused of. Arrogant and aggressive. It's joy. It's something that has been given to us by God that only belongs to God's people that nobody else on earth has. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, the day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone Who has nothing already for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Christians in the midst of this, in the midst of our our dedication to speak a, a world transforming gospel that the world hates, that the unbelieving world hates. In in all of our needing to be steadfast and keeping our hand to the plow and not grow weary in doing good. And all of our standing for the truth in opposition to the enemy's lies that pour at us from every sector. In the face of all of that, we ought to be the most joyous people on the face of the planet. We have got the good news of the gospel. We've got the unshakable promises of God. We can enjoy every good thing as a good gift from God. As, as Ezra says here, eat the fat. Drink the sweet wine. Share with others. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That is, even as we remind ourselves of our call, this is the truth we are operating out of. The joy of the Lord is our strength, and no one can take it from us. No one can take it from us because it's in him. Because we are in him. Who could separate us from the love of God? Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth, Lord. We are are challenged that we live in dark days. We're challenged, Lord, that the road is not, not easy. That the answers aren't always ready to us. But we know who our God is. You have revealed your truth to us in your word, so we are not left wandering. We are not left, Lord, even even as those who are without a shepherd and and are just straying to and fro in this world without direction. But you have given to us all that we need for life and godliness in your word. Above and beyond that, even you have given to us your Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead who who dwells within us, the same spirit who, who inspired and wrote this scripture 
testifies to its truth as we read it and lifts our eyes to behold Christ, our sure down payment of the glorious promise of salvation. So Lord, I pray you cause us to trust in you more, cause us to love you more, cause our our joy in you to grow and let the product of our worship and our devotion and our love and our obedience be faithful living in this world, we pray. For your namesake, for your kingdom's sake, and for your people's eternal joy, even the joy of future generations, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.